joining us for The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. Today we'll be discussing The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, an early murder mystery play that influenced an entire genre of plays, and also a superhero. Yeah, The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood Mm -hmm. was first produced at the Morosco Theater in New York on August 23rd, 1920, and it was very, very successful. Mm -hmm. Successful enough that it spawned a series of imitators, Mm -hmm. had a huge influence on the murder mystery genre. It even spawned sort of a subgenre they call the Had I But Known Mm -hmm. category of, of murder mysteries. And the superhero you're referring to, of course, is Batman. Batman. (laughs) Mary Roberts Reinhardt, or Reinhardt, I guess I'm not entirely certain how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. She originally got her start because uh, she and her husband needed an extra income. And as far as I can tell, I, I don't have, I haven't been able to find a copy of it. But apparently her first work was a play called The Double Life from 1906. Oh. I'm not sure if she wrote it by herself or it was published or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But the first thing she was successful for was a novel by the name of The Circular Staircase. Mm-hmm. This was published in 1908. Yep. And it was a huge success. It launched her career as a writer. She was a very prolific writer, Mm -hmm. a very interesting person historically, I think. There are books written about her. Oh, neat. She is known as the American Agatha Christie, although her career predates Agatha Christie. I believe uh, Christie's started in 1920. Okay, Uh, still not bad. Well, yeah, and Agatha Christie was considerably more popular and more enduring. Yeah. I think most people know who Agatha Christie is was, whereas Mary Mary Roberts Reinhardt is kind of an obscurity now. Mm -hmm. But she was very successful with The Circular Staircase, and so it was adapted into a film Mm -hmm. with the same name in 1915. And I'm not, I I wasn't able to find any information about this movie other than it's gone. Right. Uh, But then it was adapted because Roberts... Reinhardt, she uh, she actually was part of the war effort during World War One. Oh, and it was after the war was over. Of course, she was put together with a playwright that she had worked with prior, named Avery Hopwood. Okay, and I'm not real sure exactly what Avery Hopwood's contribution to the Bat was, mm-hmm. but the Bat was adapted largely from the novel The Circular Staircase. Okay. Then in 1926, there was a silent film adaptation Mm -hmm. released of The Bat. And there was actually a novelization released that same year. Mm -hmm. And I know for sure the novel is in the public domain because you can find it online for free. Yeah. But the uh, the novel was credited to Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood, but it was actually ghostwritten. And then uh, in 1930, when talkies became a thing, Mm -hmm. The Bat was again adapted to the movie uh, industry, except it was called The Bat Whispers. Okay. And that was the movie that inspired Bob Kane. And along with uh, The Man Who Laughs, which was a silent movie from, I think, 1928, Mm -hmm. that was where the Joker came from. Yes. And then The Bat was remade in 1959, I want to say. And were you telling me at one point, are any of these available to watch on YouTube? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I I remember you I saying didn't see something about that. The Bat like Whispers was on there. Awesome. Uh, the Bat the Silent Movie, I'm pretty sure is public domain. 
Okay. It was part of a common genre, and there was a lot of imitators. Mm-hmm. And for the purposes of this podcast, I actually read one of the imitators, right. which is called The Cat and the Canary by John Willard. Mm-hmm. That was released in 1922. Yeah. And I wasn't – I really wish I could come up with a list of all the, the imitators of the bat, because apparently mm-hmm. there were a few of them. Okay. Uh, there was another one called The Monster that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. There was a spoof called The Gorilla. <laughs> uh, and this was all in the early 1920s. Yeah. And then by about the mid-1920s, they all started getting adapted into film. And, mm-hmm. and so it became this huge genre during the 1920s. They all have these these tropes in common. And mm-hmm. one of them is The Old Dark House. Right. In fact, there's a movie with that exact title from the early 1930s. <laughs> of course there is. Influenced by that. And if you remember, like, the uh, we watched the silent movie for the bat. We watched the silent movie for the cat and the canary. Yeah. Both of them take place in these these old, dark mansions, right? Yeah, and I remember at one point I was like, we were watching the cat and the canary. I was like... Does she have to sleep overnight in a haunted house? The main character does have to spend the night in a haunted house <laughs> in this one, too. Oh, great. And so that's kind of the other thing. They're they're in these this old dark house. It's mm-hmm. isolated. Uh, in the bat, there's a thunderstorm going on all the time. Mm-hmm. It's dark. It's creepy. Uh, yeah. And this is before elect- – I mean, electricity was around, but it was still a new thing. Yeah. You've got comical fright. There's always a character sure. who is – Comically frightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was always there was a young hero mm-hmm. and a young heroine, mm-hmm. uh, or, or rather a damsel in distress sort of. Your typical uh, ingenue. An ingenue, sure. Yeah. Uh, there's typically some sort of detective or law enforcement, although mm-hmm. not always. Uh, and of course, it takes place in a huge mansion. So there's the rich old guy who owns the place. Uh-huh. Who's always dead before the play starts. Yep. So they we we just we sort of everything sort of happens in this person's shadow. Mm-hmm. And there's usually some superstition amongst mm-hmm. members of the it's always the servants though. The ghosts. Yeah, the the working class and the servants, they always believe in ghosts, whereas the the police, doctors, they they always dismiss it as superstitious nonsense. Right. And it always turns out there are no ghosts. Yeah. And on the and then there's the unfortunate trope that you see with all of these. Yeah. Eventually we're gonna have to talk about it. There is Yep. An ethnic servant. Mm-hmm. And these are often caricatures. Yeah. What we would call a hurtful stereotype. Yes. And that's one of the big drawbacks to actually producing these plays mm-hmm. is you, I mean, you can't get rid of them. You can't just write them out. Yeah. They're important parts of the plot. The, this, the character's name is Billy. Mm-hmm. And I think specifically with Asian servants, it was kind of a common thing for them to have what would have been considered a child's name. Okay. So like Bobby or Billy or Tommy mm-hmm. or Johnny or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so there's that aspect with the bat. And in The Cat and the Canary, the uh, ethnic servant is African-American. Mm-hmm. Of course, she speaks with the vernacular. Mm-hmm. Her name is very unfortunate. It is Mammy Pleasant. Yeah. We'll just call her Miss Pleasant from now on. <laughs> Yeah. Even more unfortunate because I thought, you know, when I first read these plays, I thought, well, the the characters are pretty offensive, but I don't know, maybe there were actors who uh, were getting at, they were getting work because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, 
No. Then I did a little research, and it turns oh. out traditionally they are played by white actors oh. wearing makeup. Oh. And then, of course, using either the broken English or the African-American vernacular. Um, the only exception... That's rough. It is. And there's only one exception that I know of, and that's in the movie version of The Bat. Mm-hmm. Billy is actually played by an Asian actor. Okay. Uh, but that's that's it. Yeah. It's still not a great look, but a hundred years later yeah you know? it is it has been a hundred this was a hundred years ago yeah uh, and and attitudes were very very different during that time yeah that was what they considered uh it, it was just the way it was done mm-hmm. and nobody really thought about it yeah um that said if you were to produce these in the modern day there's absolutely no way you could put that on the stage no my best suggestion, uh, because and I'm, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I'm not sure what the uh, copyright status is on either of those plays. Mm-hmm. But my suggestion would have been change the character name mm-hmm. and then just change the English yeah. to a more standard or American dialect. In uh, like with the, the bat, uh, they refer to, and of course in the script, unfortunately, they refer to him as what would... We'll just say it's a word that would now be considered an ethnic slur. Gotcha. So I'm not going to repeat it. Mm -hmm. But if you just refer to him as the butler, which would be a very easy fix in the dialogue, you you could potentially, and I thought rather than say Miss Pleasant's name, first name is what it is in the script, Mm -hmm. change it to Mary. Mm Mm-hmm. Mary Pleasant, you know, perfect, yeah. perfect goth name, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, getting away from the servant characters, what does the rest of the cast look like for the bat? All right. Well, the cast breakdown, three women, seven men. Oh, wow. Some really great, I mean, there's only three women, but they're really good roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the ingenue, of course. Her name is Dale Ogden. Dale? Dale, yes. Okay. There, there's the lead singer of Missing Persons, that new wave 80s band. Uh-huh. Her name was Dale as well. Cool. I, I think of Dale as being a man's name usually. I mean, I do too, but I'm into it. So there's there's Dale. She's young. She's in her 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also the romantic love interest and kind of the damsel in distress. Sure. There is the lead, Cornelia Van Gorder who is what they, in the script, she is referred to as an elderly spinster. Mm -hmm. So she is an unmarried woman. She's about 60. Okay. uh, But she's kind of like an amateur sleuth. Oh, fun. She's she's sort of the amateur detective amongst the group. Yeah. Uh, So it's a a cool role for Mm -hmm. an older actress. And uh, and then there's Lizzie, who is the servant. Mm -hmm. She's not the ethnic servant. She's just a servant. She's... Because the other servant is part of the estate, mm-hmm. uh, Lizzie is Cornelia's personal handmaid. Okay. And they've been together for 20 years, and she's 40 years old, and she's comically frightened. Okay. And so Cornelia and Lizzie, there's there's sort of, there's a little bit of an Abbott and Costello sure. vibe going on with them. They're, yeah. She's, uh, Lizzie is comically afraid, and... Cornelia is comically annoyed with her. Okay. Right? And that's mm-hmm. sort of their dynamic. So those are the female roles. Mm-hmm. The male roles, besides the uh, ethnic servant. Besides Billy. And uh, you've got, it's he's credited in the play as Brooks. 
Okay. Because when he's first introduced, that's the name he gives himself. But his real name is Jack Bailey. Okay. And he's the young hero. All and right. he is and and Dale is his love interest. So he's he's the young, suave, kind of witty, mm-hmm. good looking guy. There's Dr. Wells who is, uh, he's about 40s. Mm-hmm. He's sort of, uh, he's suspicious uh-huh. right from the start because you're, you're not quite sure what to make of this guy. Uh, and he does kind of weird, suspicious things pretty much right from the, the point where he's uh, introduced. Okay. There is Detective Anderson, mm-hmm. who is the detective here. And he's kind of loud. And I mean, the the script says he is nothing at all like what you would regularly think of as being a stage detective. By huh. which I'm guessing they mean he's not like Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Uh, I think he's he's a lot more blunt. He's a lot more aggressive. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, he's almost a, a hard-boiled detective before that was even a thing. Oh, so maybe like a, a Sam Spade kind of a guy. Not that cool, though. Not that cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's Richard Fleming, mm-hmm. who is the uh, nephew of the... Uh, there's the the old guy who owns the place who's dead. Mm-hmm. That's his nephew, who's Richard Fleming. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 20s, 30s. There's this really random guy who drove him there named Beerusford Reginald. <laughs> I like that name. I'm sorry, it's Reginald Beerusford. I, I still love it. <laughs> uh, and he's like, and both these guys are like 20s, 30s. Uh-huh. And then there's the, the guy that they just credit him in the script as being... The Unknown. Uh-huh. And that's the cast? And that is the entire cast, All yes. right. Given that this p- takes place at an old house, an old mansion, I'm assuming that the set is going to reflect that, but I'm also assuming that there are probably certain challenges that go along with that. Well, it's like with any other script. You can make the set as detailed, as opulent, as simple, Mm -hmm. as basic as you are capable of doing, just depending on what your budget is and how creative your set designer is. Yeah. This play does carry with it, and the Cat in the Canary's got the same problem, Mm -hmm. in that you've got this room in a mansion, and there's a staircase, and there's a terrace, and there's a door out to the terrace, and there's French windows. Sure. And there's doorways in and out, and that sort of thing. And then in the third act, because there's three acts in this play, the third act, suddenly it all transfers over to a completely different room. Fun. And the room that it transforms into has to have a secret room in it. Oh my goodness. So that's, I mean, that's one of the uh, the elements of the genre is this, there's secret panels and secret yeah. doors and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Cat in the Canary has the same thing in it. Yeah. The secret paneling and everything. Mm-hmm. And so you're going from this, and there's a, there is, a, I think, a, a prominent staircase in that first room as well. This is back, I mean, I do need to talk a little bit about the stage directions in this play. All right. Because, because the, the Samuel French version. Now, the stage directions for these types of plays usually give a very, very detailed set. Mm-hmm. And like with a lot of Samuel French scripts, there's oftentimes a blueprint mm-hmm. for the set mm-hmm. in the back of the script. And yep. so the script not only has a great deal of detail into what what's everywhere. I mean, even the set dressing and everything is detailed. Wow. 
but there's also the in the stage directions there's regular stage directions mm-hmm. you know our tagline is always don't forget to read the stage directions cause, yeah because they're very important <laughs> yeah they're very very important but to make things very difficult, <laughs> they not only have what would be considered standard stage directions, but they also have blocking. Yeah. Which is normally something that a director decides on based on what their set looks like. Mm-hmm. But that's actually written into the stage directions. There's a lot of scripts that do that. I've never been a big fan of it. Yeah, I know. And in addition to that... <laughs> There's also prompts for technical aspects mm-hmm. that, again, that would normally be part of the crew's job. Yeah, your stage manager would be in charge of some stage of that. Stage directions, uh, the stage manager or the or the uh, tech director or mm-hmm. you know, somebody. You know, uh, this is the uh, the technician that they refer to in the script uh, is the electrician. Yeah. Which would be the lighting designer, I yeah. Guess, or the lighting operator, or something. But the electrician mm-hmm. is is often up there, and lights are a very important aspect of this play. Yeah. So yeah, the set is it's complicated. Uh-huh. It's it's very much like a stage thriller. All these stage thrillers, they all they're they're big, full sets, and mm-hmm. the fact that you got to switch from one to the other just makes it all the more challenging. Yeah. And if you really wanted to do it simple, build a set and then put it on casters. And and make it a double cider or something like that. Yeah. The big challenge, I would say, is going to be lighting. Yeah. Because there's a lot of instruction for following people with their candles. Mm-hmm. And that's, they use candles here. Mm-hmm. Because right at the top of the play, we find out that the local, I guess the substation, mm-hmm. shuts off the electricity when the weather gets bad. Oh. Because it's 1920 and electricity isn't quite so reliable yet. Yeah. So probably lots of blue light. Mm-hmm. But I think what the playwright's intent was to get the glowing of the candle lights mm-hmm. as characters move from one place to another. Yeah. Now, I think these days you could probably do that with just electric candles. Yeah, maybe. I, I think it would be kind of dangerous to have that many candle, like lit Like actual flame. Yeah. On, uh, on stage all at once. Uh, mm-hmm. Any kind of fire at all on stage, I'm very nervous about. Right. Especially if it's moving around with people. Yeah. I've seen the way actors sometimes behave with glasses of water. <laughs> I, I don't really want to get into what they would do with something that's burning. Yeah. But yeah, and of course, uh, and this will come up when I describe the plot, mm-hmm. but there's also the bat signal. The bat signal. Yeah, there is a, it's like a spotlight mm-hmm. with a, a, the, like a paper cutout of a bat. A gobo. On it, yeah. I think it's called, right? Uh, yeah, gobo. Okay, and, uh, I didn't take lighting in college. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, too. I haven't, done tech- I haven't done technical work in years. Okay. But yes, there's there's the bat signal has to go across the stage. Oh, man. Uh, and so that's that's the big thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. lighting a, a dark, what's supposed to be a dark mansion with candlelight yeah. on top of which you got a spotlight that you're going to need. Okay. So that's that's the big re- technical requirement. So you already mentioned that, you know, you would get to some of the challenges when you talked about the plot. So let's just go get into that. Um, let's 
let's delve into the plot. There are three total acts. I would suggest that the first act is probably the longest. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to put an intermission into it, I would say between act one and act two. Okay. Although I think it would really serve your benefit to do two intermissions for this. Okay. In part because the first act is long and in part because you have a set change from act two into act three. Sure. So I think it would be, plus they're all kind of lengthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of comic routines. There's a lot of explanation. There's a lot of sleuthing. Mm -hmm. And so it does get to be kind of a long play. It's probably not a bad idea to give your audience a couple of different breaks anyway. Sure. So we open up on on a dark and stormy night. Yes. Right. As as per the genre, we need thunder and lightning effects mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And we have Cornelia and Lizzie on stage together, and of course, they're they're that we've talked about their comic interactions. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of that. We're just finding out because they're they're on a phone, and there's a there's a phone. It's mm-hmm. an old school phone, but it's really just a house phone. Yeah, it just goes from room to room. Interesting. Okay. And uh, but she's talking to somebody at I guess the power station mm-hmm. about the power, and that's where we find out that they have to shut it down, and they immediately start talking about the bat. <gasps> So we have to get right into this. We uh-huh. got a, there's a masked criminal on the loose, and his name is the Bat. You know, Lizzie, she's she's superstitious, and mm-hmm. we meet Billy pretty much right away. They're afraid of actual ghosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Cornelia, she's very no-nonsense. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing is she almost immediately goes from calling it superstitious nonsense to saying, now get me my Ouija board. <laughs> So we have a Ouija board getting mm-hmm. introduced right away, uh-huh. and it's kept under a pile of books because okay. Lizzie is superstitious. I mean, she she doesn't even want to touch the thing, mm-hmm. and she sort of unwillingly goes to the, the Ouija board, and it spells out the bat. Ooh. And then Cornelia goes and gets the newspaper, and the newspaper article is about the, the bat. bat. And it talks about how, you know, they're, they're, the police have given up looking into the criminal underworld for the bat. Oh, no. So now they think that it by, by night they may be a desperate criminal, but by day they may be a lawyer or a politician or, you know, some other kind of professional. Or- <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we're, we're kind of already getting into the sort of comic booky. Little melodrama. Yeah, it's a, it's a little melodramatic. Mm-hmm. It's a little it's a little like a penny dreadful. Sure, you know. Soon after this, we're introduced to Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy comes in, he announces, and then we got this guy named Brooks. Brooks is young, he's good looking, uh, he's charming, he's smooth, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this great little scene where Corne- he's coming in as a gardener, mm-hmm. and Cornelia she tests him. Uh-huh. And asks him about three different conditions and what what he would do for them, and then it turns out that she was she's like one of the conditions she brought up was rubella, <laughs> which is a disease, and it, it becomes yeah. really obvious that this guy is not a gardener, mm-hmm. but she trusts him anyway enough to hire him. Okay. So Brooks is introduced. Mm-hmm. This is all exposition and introducing all the characters. Mm-hmm. The next characters we see are Dale Ogden, mm-hmm. who is Cornelia's niece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. young niece, and Dr. Wells. And they show up about the same time. And this is about the time we start getting a lot of the exposition mm-hmm. set up here. So the house is owned by a guy named Courtly Fleming. 
Okay. Right. Courtly Fleming is the old guy, and he died recently. Mm-hmm. He died a few days prior. Mm-hmm. He was in Colorado, mm-hmm. and he was the president of the Union Bank, and the Union Bank was just robbed of a million dollars. Oh, no. And their chief suspect is a cashier by the name of Jack Bailey. Oh. And Jack Bailey apparently ran, so they're pretty uh-huh. sure they got the right guy. Uh-huh. Cornelius actually rented the the house mm-hmm. from Courtly Fleming, Fleming, actually from his nephew, Richard Fleming. Okay. Also known as Dick, mm-hmm. so Dick Fleming. And that's what we find out about the background. Mm-hmm. This is about the time where we find out that there's been some recent break-in attempts. Mm-hmm. Cornelia, she's only been there for a couple of days, but the servants are seeing ghosts. Mm-hmm. Most of the house servants have left because they, they're afraid of the ghosts. Uh-huh. But Cornelia does know that there's been somebody trying to get in and she's been getting threats. Oh. And then around that time, a rock gets thrown in through the window. Oh, that and can't be fun to stage. Yeah, well, and he's got to smash some glass. Yeah. So I'm just seeing, you know, the the technical director trying to decide, okay, well, to make some sugar glass or something uh-huh. for that. Plus, you got to, I mean, you got to repair it every night. So yeah. There's a there is a bit of a technical challenge there. Yeah. Rock comes in, has a message attached attached to it, mm-hmm. and the message is a threat: get out or else. Sure. Cornelia, she's. She's hardcore. She's she, she is absolutely. I mean, she's. This is like the night of her life. Yeah. Except she's she's very stoic. Uh huh. The other thing about Cornelia is that, and you see it in the movie version a lot too. Mm-hmm. She really likes her knitting. Oh, okay. And so throughout a lot of this play, she's knitting. Right. And while she's deducing things and, mm-hmm. and being a, an amateur sleuth, she's also. Yeah, we know, we saw that in the film, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's. It's a character thing, and of course, mm-hmm. Lizzie is is constantly complaining, and she's constantly annoyed with it. You know, a lot of comedy there. So they barricade the door, and there's this whole business with the latch. Mm-hmm. There's a door that goes out to the terrace. That's a way of getting into the building, and it has a. It's got a lock on it, but it's also got a bolt on it. Mm-hmm. And Doctor Wells goes up and says he's latching it. But then Cornelia goes up and looks at it and says, "You didn't actually latch this, Doctor Wells." So there's. We're already getting the suspicion that Doctor Wells or something going on with him. He's a little shifty. He's a little shifty. So, okay. Uh, so we've been introduced to a huge majority of the cast already. Right. Now, one of the things we find out ahead of time is that there's a detective coming mm-hmm. over. Cornelia, because of the threats and the break-in and stuff, has requested a police detective. Well, sure. Uh, to come over. So that's when Detective Anderson comes in. Mm-hmm. Detective Anderson is really, he he interrogates everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, he interrogates Lizzie. He tries to cur- interrogate Cornelia, but has a hard time of it. Mm-hmm. He interrogates Brooks. He interrogates everybody that he can possibly interrogate, basically. Yeah. Uh, Cornelia reveals that she has a revolver. So there's a revolver involved. Okay. We also hear about the bat's signature. Mm-hmm. The bat has, it's like a piece of paper cut like a bat okay. that he leaves behind. And the detective brings up that there was one case where the bat left behind an actual bat, like a dead bat or a uh-huh. stuffed bat or something like that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we get a little tiny scene where it's Dale on the stage by herself with... 
Brooks. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, we find out that Brooks isn't really Brooks. Right. His name is Jack Bailey. Uh-huh. And he's the cashier that who was, is, who was a, accused of absconding with the money. Mm-hmm. He's the honest guy. I mean, this yeah. is, this guy is is one of the good guys. Yeah. But he's he wants to prove his innocence. Mm-hmm. And it's this it's a very contrived coincidence. <laughs> of course it, it is. Yeah. But it turns out that Jack Bailey, he he's a World War 1 veteran mm-hmm. and he served overseas with the architect of the house. Oh, interesting. Bizarre. Yeah. But it's it is it's that's actually in the dialogue uh-huh. about how he he served with the architect and the architect told him that there was a hidden room somewhere in the house. And so Sure. That's a normal thing to tell a person. It's yeah, it's <laughs> it's great. It's like it's, <laughs> It's this sort of this forced little plot point with yeah. a weird little contrived. It's it's kind of it's sort of quaint. Yeah. Um, it turns out that there's this hidden room, uh-huh. and so the belief is if they can find the hidden room, that's probably where the money is. And the suspicion is that whoever whoever actually stole that money uh-huh. has come back to the house and hidden it there. Okay. And they're they're still not quite sure who it is, but it. Jack has reason to believe that whoever actually did it would have hidden it there. Okay. And, you know, he suspects it might have been Courtly Fleming or somebody who was affiliated with him or Richard Fleming. Somebody that had access to the house, certainly. Yeah, something is going on. The challenge for him now is to find this hidden room. Right. That's that's one of the plot points is find the hidden room, find the money, Mm -hmm. and exonerate Jack Bailey. Okay. Also, there's a romance. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I forgot to say that. Or, yeah. It's it's fine. You, you kind of expect it with this type of thing. So, yeah. Uh, and, of course, the reason, the reason Dale and Jack Bailey are discussing this information is because they are romantically involved. Already? Well, yeah. They, are, they have been since before the play started. Oh, I see. So we are, we're finding out not just that Dale is keeping a secret, but that... Mm-hmm. Brooks is actually not who he says he is, God. but he's still innocent. He's still mm-hmm. an innocent person trying to prove his innocence. Mm-hmm. Because he needs to find that hidden room, he needs to find the blueprints. Okay. Eventually, Richard Fleming shows up. Right. And Dale lets him in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that, uh, Dr. Wells comes back on stage and he undoes that latch oh. again. So And so the audience already knows that he's up to no good. Yeah. And it's during this time there's this sort of mysterious rapping going on in the uh, the walls. And then mm-hmm. Lizzie comes in and she has this little comic moment. Mm-hmm. There's the introduction of somebody wearing a luminous watch. And Lizzie mistakes it for an eye. Oh. Freaks out, of course. Oh, Lizzie. Uh, so like I mentioned, eventually Richard Fleming shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's just Dick Fleming. They call him Dick. And uh, and Dale on stage for a little while. Mm-hmm. And Dale, you know, she doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's distressed because her fiancé... Mm-hmm. is uh, in desperate trouble right now. And yeah. so she confides in Richard Fleming, mm-hmm. tells him about the hidden room, mm-hmm. talks about the blueprints, and Richard Fleming, he's kind of he's kind of a scumbag. Oh, okay. So he immediately starts looking at this as an opportunity. Uh-huh. 
And so when she brings up blueprints, he goes, no, I have no idea where they are. But he really does know oh, where they are. Yeah, and, okay. And so he gets greedy. And as soon as Dale is off stage, and he kind of tricks her to go on off stage, mm-hmm. a, he goes for the blueprints and he tears out a piece of them that has the secret room. <gasps> and she walks back in and catches him at it. And <gasps> he takes the blueprints and throws them into the fireplace. <gasps> what a scoundrel. So, yes, he's like, he's he wants the money for himself. Uh-huh. So there's this this scuffle because Dale is desperate mm-hmm. to exonerate Jack. Mm-hmm. Dale ends up getting like the big half because it tears. It's mm-hmm. supposed to tear. And then Dale has the larger piece. Mm-hmm. And then there's a flashlight from off stage. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. And then gunshot <gasps> and Dick dies. Oh, he, he, just, he gets shot from someone off stage? Yeah. Okay. Like someone just off stage fires a revolver and and he shoots dies. him. Okay. He just collapses. Oh my goodness. And so everybody comes on stage uh-huh. and everybody's freaked out. Yeah. And then the phone rings. Uh huh. And they look around. And they say, "But everybody's here." Oh. It's a, it's a house phone. Right. Right. So everybody they know is there. <laughs> the call is coming is, from inside the house. It's coming from inside the house. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Cornelia goes up and answers it and blackout. <gasps> and then that's the end of the act. Okay. So everybody in this, I mean, I'm describing it as quickly as I can. Yeah. But there's a lot of complexities there's, going yeah, on. Yeah, there's so much going on in this show. Act two, the action is continuous. Okay. And that's, I mean, again, one of those reasons why you'd want an intermission there. Because mm-hmm. it is continuous action. We hear there there are dreadful groans at the phone, and everybody is is right where they were, of course, uh-huh. at the very end there. The detective knows that there's something going on with Dale, right? That okay. she's, she's hiding something. Mm-hmm. So she finally admits that the, the, the cashier is somebody that she's involved with. Okay. And we find out that the blueprints got burned in the fireplace, and all this sort of evidence comes along. Mm-hmm. It's at this point we see the bat signal. <gasps> bat signal kind of comes through. It's, they call it the bat light. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, that's what it is. It's, the bat, it's the bat signal. Everybody's on stage, so everybody ends up seeing it. Uh, then Dr. Wells comes back. Uh, Dr. Wells had left. He he went to go and check on patients or something like that. So he came that's back. That's not suspicious. Yeah. And, well, he's tr- he's showing his concern. He's mm-hmm. concerned for Cornelia and Dale. He wants the women out of there. Uh-huh. He feels like they're in danger. So that's, that's the motivation, at least the motivation that he's giving. Mm-hmm. So then Reginald Beresford mm-hmm. comes on stage. This is the guy who was Dick Fleming's ride. So <laughs> Okay. That's why, I mean, when he first showed up, I'm like, who is this guy and why <laughs> is he here? Uh-huh. And I, you kind of get the impression that even the character kind of feels that way about the character. <laughs> why am I here? He's, he's probably just another person to, to fill out the ranks a little bit mm-hmm. to, to leave the audience guessing. Yeah. Uh, but Billy brings him in. This is where we find out that uh, the, the butler knows jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Turns out Mr. Beersford had a searchlight, uh, but he does, he does eventually he's, he's very uh blase about everything mm-hmm. he eventually ends up seeing the body and kind of freaks out and, uh-huh. uh same goes with the detective they end up uh they ended up pick up end up picking up the body and moving it off stage mm-hmm. so thankfully the actor who's playing <laughs> reginald 
doesn't have to be dead on stage doesn't anymore. Doesn't have to lay there the entire friggin' play, but yeah. he does have to get dragged off. Yeah. The detective does get Dale to confess because mm-hmm. Dale kept that piece of the blueprint on her. Oh. But she's she was freaked out about it. She ended up slipping it onto a tray, and uh-huh. then the butler ran off with the tray. Okay. So this blueprint that shows where the secret room is is now off stage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Wells goes to get it. Mm-hmm. And so from that point on, we, we're not really sure. Does he, did he get the blueprint? Did he not uh-huh. get the blueprint? There are times when they blame, they sort of suspect the butler has it. Uh-huh. There's some uh, business here with this unknown guy. Uh-huh. Um, and we kind of see him moving around. And again, it's the, the play is a lot of people moving in and moving out yeah. all over the place. Cornelia, one of the, I think that had I but known genre, I think one of the, mm-hmm. the aspects of that is that the uh, the protagonist, Cornelia, is kind of going through it like uh, – if I was doing this, what would I do? Okay. And so she's making a lot of uh, of uh, deductions about mm-hmm. what's going on here and testing theories. And she succeeds quite a lot. She seems to be – she's yeah. got a really good track record. <laughs> she's starting to suspect Dr. Wells. Mm-hmm. And she manages to get a thumbprint. Uh, she d- discusses all kinds of stuff with the detective. Yeah. The detective suspects uh, Jack Bailey, of course. Right. And eventually Dale confesses everything. Mm-hmm. Eventually we get to a point where it's Dr. Wells and the detective on stage, and you can tell there's something going on between these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they f- fight with each other. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wells subdues the detective, cuffs him, and then drags him off. So oh, really? One of those. And then there's that, those knocking, the knocking happens again. Eventually, you've got this guy who's been in the shadows. And in the script, he's getting credited as, as quote unquote unknown. Mm-hmm. Now he's on stage. He's got blood on his head. On so his some, head? On his head. So something's happened to him. And he seems to be dazed. Oh. Uh, but the, the act basically stops with him passing out. Uh, There's sort of a general chaos and panic, and we've got this paper bat that shows up on the door. Which is the bat's calling card. Calling card. Yeah. And they're all locked in. Ooh. And that's where the act comes to an end. Okay. Further complications, and then... And then everybody's trapped, and then lights go down. Uh-huh. And this is where you'd have that big, complicated scene change. Right. Which is why a, a, an intermission would be a good idea there if, mm-hmm. if, uh, if your theater is capable of doing that. Right. Act three takes place in what they call the trunk room. Hmm. It's on the third floor. I think it's like an attic storage space. Sure. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. There's a lot of detail as to what kind of clutter is on stage. There's a a window that goes outside. There's a door that goes into the rest of the house. There is a hamper. And then there's the hidden room. Mm -hmm. And inside the hidden room, there's there's a safe. Right. And when the light comes up, the hidden door is wide open, mm-hmm. and the the masked man, mm-hmm. they have him as the masked man, so the bat. the bat. He's shown getting the money from the safe, but he can hear everybody coming. Okay. They've apparently broken out from where they are, and they're on their way. Mm-hmm. So we slowly get everybody coming on stage. Cornelia comes on stage, Bailey, Beerusford, all from different places. Dale comes on. So they all come on, and uh, they find out, they, they end up discovering, Cornelia finds the hidden room. Mm-hmm. 
and they open it up and they think all is saved and then the money is gone. They leave. Uh, the masked guy comes back on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably to get because he had to leave the money there. Yeah. Dale comes on and Dale ends up trapped in the room with him. Uh-huh. Cornelia and Dr. Wells come back on stage. Uh, the hidden door opens up. Uh, the bat runs out. And Dr. Wells deliberately aids his escape by putting out the candle. Dr. Wells. And Cornelia sees it and oh. calls him out on it. We know that there's something going on with Dr. Wells. Yeah. But we also know that he's not the bat. Because right. he's on stage at the same time after that. <laughs> and uh, Detective Anderson, he shows up. Uh, Dale has to be revived because she faints. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, She's so fragile and delicate. Yeah, it's that trope. Yep. But uh, Cornelia is sure that we still have this variable, and that is the bat. Right. There's this actual flapping of a bat's wings. Okay. That like, you can hear. So it's a sound effect? Something like that, okay. yeah. Uh, the cat and the canary is the same way. They they talk about that cat and canary motif repeatedly. Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. Repeatedly. Yeah. Of course, there's another, there's a bad guy who's also, he's called the cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's he's like a crazy mental, escape mental patient or something like that. Yeah. We see unknown, because the, the, whoever the unknown is, he's fighting memory loss. And uh, he and the detective, they know each other, but it seems like the unknown is having a hard time remembering who the detective is. Cornelius comes on, gets everybody off the stage by seeing a man on the roof. Okay. And so everybody's off stage, save for Dale, Lizzie, the unknown, and Cornelia, who comes back. And there's a lot of sleuthing. Cornelia has her gun again because mm-hmm. it's Chekhov's gun. It actually has to get used somehow. Right? Yeah. At this point in time, Cornelia is she's closing in on things. Right. So we're seeing her really take the lead. She's Up putting to this, together all the pieces. She is. Yeah. Up to this point, she's kind of been on the side. She's been present through everything. Yeah. But she's kind of been off onto the side, criticizing things and making snarky remarks. Knitting. And knitting. <laughs> and so now she's really starting to take a lead. Mm-hmm. Cornelia ends up. This is one of the big shocks right here, right? Yeah. She finds the body of Courtly Fleming. <gasps> and it turns out the body's still warm. <gasps> but he's dead. Uh-huh. And he's got aluminum, a luminous watch. Ooh. So he was probably the guy we saw earlier. And so it turns out that Courtly Fleming was murdered by the bat oh whomever the bat may be mm-hmm. well bailey comes in uh gives sort of a nice little summary because mm-hmm. this is another one of those aspects of the genre is we got to summarize everything at the end yeah uh we come to find out that courtly fleming and dr wells were co-conspirators mm-hmm. for uh lifting of basically robbing his own bank uh-huh but without realizing it was happening, his nephew, Dick Fleming, mm-hmm. leased the house. Oh. So they needed to scare Cornelia away in order to get out the treasure uh-huh. that got left behind there. It's a little bit like a Scooby-Doo plot. A little bit. Yeah. But Dr. Wells, he was still partly in the dark, and he didn't know about the bat. Mm-hmm. The bat was this variable that he wasn't familiar. So the Dr. Wells being shocked at the bat and all this other stuff, it's been pretty genuine sure. on his part. Well, then uh, Cornelia figures out where the money is. Mm-hmm. It was it was hidden in a satchel, and she the satchel was in the hamper, I think a clothes hamper on stage. Okay. And then there's a fire. <gasps> oh, no. But it's off stage. Oh, good. 
So it's lighting effect. Uh-huh. Right. So there's a, there's a fire that starts outside, and then the the guy that we've been referring to as the unknown, he suddenly springs into action, uh-huh. starts taking charge and everything. Uh, the bat comes on mm-hmm. through the window, and Bailey and this unknown guy, they grab him. They have him in cuffs almost immediately, uh-huh. and they pull his mask off dramatically, mm-hmm. and it's Detective Anderson. <gasps> no! Yep. Because the, the two guys have never been seen on stage together. Oh. And so Detective Anderson was was to some – well, it actually, it, it's not Detective Anderson. The guy that we've been referring to as the unknown is Detective Anderson. Oh! And Detective Anderson is actually the bat. Right. And the bat knocked out Detective, Detective Anderson and took his place. Okay. And then there's this great little bluff. This, this whole play ends, and they ended up re- – the funny thing is – the big twist at the end, mm-hmm. it's in the movie, too. Yeah. They don't change it at all. Mm-hmm. So if you saw the play in 1920 or 1921 or anything like that, and you went and saw the movie in 1926, you already knew how it was going to end. Yeah, spoiler. <laughs> yeah. And well. the funny thing is the movie starts with a title card oh. that says, you know, be courteous to the other people coming to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Do not spoil the end. Yeah. And uh, there's this great little scene at the very, very end mm-hmm. where the bat, uh, he's he's in cuffs, mm-hmm. but he grabs the revolver and he points it at everybody. And it's this last desperate attempt. Uh-huh. And then Korneliev very calmly says... I know that it won't. I mean, everybody's got their hands up except for her. She's knitting. (laughs) She says, I'm not too worried about it. I took the bullets out of that gun uh, an hour ago or something like that. Yeah. So the bat throws their detective bat, whatever you want to call (laughs) it. Detective bat. Yeah. (laughs) He throws the gun aside and Uh tries to run away and they grab him. Uh-huh. And then he and then somebody picks up the gun and it turns out it actually it was loaded. loaded. <laughs> of course. And Cornelia says the first lie of an otherwise spotless life. <laughs> and it worked perfectly uh-huh. and the bat is captured and, and uh-huh. that's the end of the play. The end. <laughs> so that is a pretty wild ride. Uh, well, how about if you did want to tackle the challenge of producing this? What do the rights look like? Well, the rights are a great big question mark. Okay. I can say for sure, because the copy of the bat that I got is a Samuel French Library Reader's Edition that was published in the 30s. Oh, wow. And I believe the script was also published in the 50s, like reprinted maybe. And uh, there was a, I did actually come across another, like an earlier draft or something of the bat mm-hmm. uh, from earlier. But because it was first produced in 1920, it should be in the public domain range. Yeah. But I did find, I, I looked it up online. It, it looks like maybe nobody knows for sure. Oh, okay. You know, uh, who actually owns the rights, if anybody. So okay. It's a big question mark as for where the status of this is. Huh. There are no recent printings that I was able to find of the bat. Right. The most recent script printing, I believe, came from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I don't I don't think there's anybody doing this play yeah. anywhere. And the same goes with The Cat and the Canary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a Samuel French play. I think it was maybe last printed in the 50s as well. Mm-hmm. Big question mark as to whether or not somebody still owns the rights. I mean, if you wanted to produce it, uh, the first thing I would do is call Samuel French. Probably, yeah. And, and talk to somebody and say, we want to do the bat. 
but there's two things. Number one, we don't know who owns the rights. And mm-hmm. number two, we've got an ethnic stereotype that we need to neutralize. Yeah. We can't cut the character, but we have to make him not offensively stereotypical. Yeah. Because if it is owned by somebody, mm-hmm. you cannot make those changes without their permission. Correct. So that's, I mean, even if it's offensive, even if the person who wrote it would be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of embarrassed that I went that direction now. Mm-hmm. Even if that's the case, you have to get permission. Yeah. And the same goes with uh, The Cat and the Canary. Yep. If you want to read the scripts, mm-hmm. I got both of these through interlibrary loans. So, so they may be long out of print, but there are copies out there somewhere yeah. that as long as you're willing to go through the Iliad and uh, and ask for them, mm-hmm. you, can, you can get them because that's exactly what I did. All right. That is all the time we have for the bat. Look for us next month when we'll be discussing The Cave Dwellers by William Soroyan. If you're looking to find us online, we are thepleadreaderspod at gmail.com and at thepleadreaders on Twitter. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod. And until next time, don't forget to read the stage directions. Mm-hmm.